Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, where we aim to bring you the most amazing and bizarre science stories direct from us to your brain. My name's James Bourne, and on this edition we'll feature the Hendra virus and making lab classes more interesting. But first up, here's the news with me in the studio to discuss is Mick Cavazzini and Ian Wolfe. <laughs> Dominating the news in Australia this week has been uh, an outbreak of the Hendra virus in Queensland. Now, only a little bit interesting, I guess, because it's been discovered in an entirely new species that it hadn't been found in previously. A, a dog on a property that was quarantined has uh, actually taken the virus on, essentially. It was found in antibodies in testing that they were doing up on the property. And this has got a lot of scientists worried because uh, they assumed before that it was just going to be passing from bats to horses and horses to, to humans. And so this has thrown a bit of a spanner in the biological works. And, um, yeah, I, I guess they're a little bit uh, concerned about the future of this virus and whether that could maybe transfer between other species in the wild. Yeah, and I believe they're concerned about their dog. They don't want their dog killed just because he might be dangerous. And they've talked about, well, it might change his behaviour, it might not. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's the family pet, and so obviously they don't want to, to, to see him perish. But uh, it is government policy here that uh, any animal that has contracted the Hendra virus has to be destroyed. And uh, I don't think it's worth the risk of maybe keeping the pet even as lovely as it is. If it's going to possibly move on to humans, because I mean, as as we know, the Hendra virus has a hugely potent fatality rate um, in in horses, but not in bats, isn't that right? Yeah, bats don't actually show any symptoms of the virus; it sort of passes through them. That's very weird, and and species jumping itself is very scary. So yeah. we've got no idea how how it might express itself in in, in humans once it's chopped and changed forms a few more times. Exactly. Well, the, the virus that they found in this dog isn't a mutation. It's the same virus that they found in horses, which I guess is one relief, but the fact that it's got into a dog at all is, is concerning. And, um, you know, in, in the past uh, 17 years that it's been known about in Australia, we've had four humans die from seven that have contracted it. So it's, it's pretty potent, and I don't think they want to be taking any chances but what is the uh, efficiency of transmission between horses and humans? Um, essentially, any human that's been... Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, exposed for a prolonged period to any animal with a virus has contracted it. Um, and so, uh, basically, those that have um, contracted in the past have been the doctors who have been conducting autopsies on these horses. Um, the first case in 1994 was actually the um, owner and trainer of the horses up in Queensland, who, along with the 19 horses in his stable, contracted it and died. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's not the type of virus that you want to be uh, taking any chances with, I don't think. 
but they've probably been in contact with horse blood or, or horse phlegm or something yeah, like that. Yeah, um, the, the first case they thought was maybe a discharge from the, the nose of the horse or something. So it it's probably not airborne, but uh, yeah, still still concerning. And the fact that it's spread by fruit bats is basically what the governments are, are trying to figure out if they can address that issue, cut it off at the cause rather than manage it. Um, and of course, the, uh, the, the various environmental agencies are, are hounding that down because culling an entire species is not only sort of morally questionable, but a, a little bit impractical. And um, also, if, if you move a species on um, from an area to try and stop the, the mm. chance of a virus, uh, the fruit bat will just sort of recolonize that area from somewhere else in, in the country. And so to, to get rid of a fruit bat in one area, you kind of have to get rid of the entire population across the country. The solution they're not looking at, which is staring us right in the face, is the the Batman solution. <laughs> the more the closer we make ourselves to fruit bats, presumably the more immune we'll be to the symptoms of the disease. So h- how do you suggest we get there, possibly? Well, I mean, you've seen the movie. Actually, no, it might not work in the movie. It's more of a uh, exoskeleton that Batman wears, m- uh, less of a genetic biological mutation. That he... So maybe some transfusions or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Really wealthy bats. We'll leave it up to the scientists out there to figure that one out. listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send your emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. And we're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and into Sydney on 2SER and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Subscribe now. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvellous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Associate Professor Les Kirkup from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, spoke to Ian Wolfe about his being awarded the National Teaching Fellowship from the Australian Teaching and Learning Council. Ian Wolfe began by asking him to explain what the National Teaching Fellowship is about. The National Teaching Fellowship, they are awarded to academics who've identified an issue of national importance and have come up with a means of addressing that issue. So in my case, I'm looking at how students learn in laboratories and particularly trying to improve the experience of students in laboratories. 
yeah, you've got a number of interesting challenges to come to grips with. One is the motivation of students and why they're there and why they think they're there. And the other is being part, in some cases, of an enormous class. I know of places around Australia where the subject will have 2,000 students in that subject. And so how do you cope with that in terms of giving them an authentic, valuable laboratory experience? These are not trivial problems. And they're problems, if I, if I can use the word problem, that actually are growing in time because first-year classes over the years have got bigger and bigger. The diversity of students in terms of their interests and background has got greater. And yet we still have high expectations of what the students will leave with once they've finished first year, second year, third year. What can we do to give them a better experience? Yes, I think what you probably need to do is maybe go back to square one, put aside in the first instance the the background of the students and think about what it is, if you're a scientist, that makes science unique. What is it that drew the scientists into their science? What is it that you want the students to experience? You've got to live with the constraints. You've got to think, how am I going to do all these things with a diverse group? But what is it critical about laboratory laboratories that, that can enhance a student's experience? And so that's what I want to do. I want to try and develop what, what is generally termed as inquiry-oriented or inquiry-based experiences for many reasons, but not least because it mimics much more closely what scientists actually do. And also, I think, it gives the students a taste of what science is. Sometimes first-year classes play it safe. They can be fairly um, straightforward, perhaps in some cases a bit stale and lifeless experiences, and students don't do the interesting stuff till the second year. The problem with that is many of them won't make it to the second year because of the turn-off that's happened in the first year. So there are many reasons for students and academics and institutions to think very carefully about what happens to the students in the first year. And it seems to me that the opportunities of engaging students that inquiry learning can give you, especially in the laboratory and the field, are opportunities that the universities need to grasp very quickly because it'll make a difference to their retention, it'll make a difference to the number of students they attract, let's say, to do research in their own institution. And, and it'll also help define the institution's special place in the world, if you like. Each institution, each university is trying to carve out a niche for itself. Well, no better way to do that in some ways than to have the inquiry opportunities or activities that the students do in the first year give that flavour to the students, give that flavour to the institution. So this is about student learning for sure, but it's also about universities pitching what they do on a broader scale so they can show themselves to be unique in some ways or different in some ways from other universities. So it seems to me there's quite a few different things going on there. On the one hand, you want to give students an opportunity to actually feel that they're doing science, that they're finding something out, that that they're into the inquiry. You want it not to be boring and you want it to be something of the flavour of where they are. Mm. And I think it needs to be doable as well. You can have high ideals. If you imagine that still today the majority of students have come from from a school situation which can be fairly constrained and restricted. They've got to jump through some hoops to pass exams, to get marks, to get to university. There's not necessarily much opportunity there for diversity and for um, students and, and for, for them to, um, to branch out and, and look at different things. When they come to university... What do they know of university? 
How do they know they're at a university? Well, first of all, they should be doing different things to what they did at school, number one. They're in a place where original research takes place. That didn't happen in school. And perhaps the original research angle is what distinguishes a university from any other tertiary experience. So I would think if I was a first-year student, I'd, and I know my first-year students, they come with excitement, they come with anticipation, they come with creativity. We want to build on those things and have the students more creative at the end and more fulfilled than when they came in. And so that will not happen if we give them fairly mundane, routine, step-by-step -step experiences. And my experience when I was a student and many of the people who were students with me had that experience. Many were turned off. Some people made it through the system despite things. You know, there are always people who will hang out for the really interesting stuff. That shouldn't be what we're doing nowadays. We should be saying there are interesting things you can do, investigations you can take, uh, you can be involved with, working in teams and all sorts of very useful things that can come out of a well-planned, well-scaffolded, if you like, supported course that looks at in inquiry in the laboratory. And these are what you want to do. You want to build on the capacities and, and, and enthusiasm that students come in with and have them really charged up about the potential of being a scientist or even, even if they have no long-term interest in science, that they will be able to leave with a lot of personal experience and personal um, satisfaction of having come to grips with some of the uh, challenges that science offers, which will be of long-term benefit to them, irrespective of the, of the job they do at the end. And meeting these challenges of, that inquiry places before you helps in many areas, not just in pursuing a science career. Well, I think that's so important because, I mean, one of the things I remember from my student days was, you know, if uh, how could you tell which type of lab you're in? Well, you know, if it was dead, it was biology. If it smelled bad, it was chemistry. If it didn't work, it was physics. <laughs> and what you're talking about is creating good, meaningful experiences so that you're not just learning to the exam, but you're learning that you can find things out in Ab the lab. Absolutely. And I have to say that although the, all what I've said it sounds all fine and dandy, hopefully it does, one of the challenges is that it's not just for the students. If you have a new concept or a different concept of what labs should be, how do you actually support your students in those labs? Because you go from a position of where things are very well defined and the outcomes are already um, decided, if you like, what the students are going to find, to a situation where the academics have to cope with a whole range of students doing a whole range of things. So not only are the students out of the comfort zone very often, but the academics themselves are out of the comfort zone. And that's partly the reason why inquiry laboratories haven't perhaps taken hold as much as they could have. And that's one of the angles of my fellowship to say, well, how do you look after? How do you support? How do you help the students as they meet the challenge that inquiry learning offers in the laboratory. So it's not just students, it's not just curriculum, it's about recognizing the different development uh, skills or different um, uh, approaches are required from academics if they're going to support student learning in, the, in, the, in those sorts of laboratories. You can change the curriculum as much as you like, but you need to help the people who enact that curriculum, who make it happen in the laboratory. And one of the other things I want to do, in fact, with the fellowship is I want to go into the laboratory. I don't want to be telling people from on high the things that should be done. I think that's the very worst thing you can do. You need to get in there, get, get your hands dirty and be involved as well. And that's one of the things I want to do. I want to go around the country, be involved with people who are trying to develop these experiences for students and see what the real problems are, because this isn't just turn the handle stuff. This really has a number of challenges that um, we all from time to time struggle with. And it's, I want to sort of be an assist and help uh, develop whatever 
um, internal support is required to give the academics the feeling that these things are worth doing, not only the students. Would you be able to give me an example of an inquiry-based laboratory experience? Because I deal a lot with the first year, and um, very often the students don't come with all the skills they need to do experiments, one of my particular inquiry experiments goes over a couple of weeks where in the first week the students will learn some of the basic skills you need because you can't just throw people in the deep end. They've got to know how to use equipment. So one of the experiments that we have is looking at efficiency of domestic pots and pans. If you want to use the energy sources um, that we have available to us most efficiently, it's best to, to boil your water in your pan with as least energy as possible. Most people would think that's a good idea. The question might be, from an inquiry point of view, how efficient is your aluminium pot compared to your enamel pot compared to your steel pot? Is there any difference between them? And of course, if there is, you might have a preference for that pot that uses the least energy to boil the water. So in the first week, you might be helping the students understand about heat transfer, about actually quantifying the amount of heat transferred into the water in various situations. So there's a sort of skills that might be to do with gathering data, recording it, plotting graphs. But it'll be fairly well directed, fairly well, so that students get the skills necessary. The second week or the second part of the experiment might be, well, here are a whole range of commercially available pots. Let's see if you can devise an experiment to establish which of the pots is different, uh, is most efficient, how efficient they are, and whether there's a much of a muchness between them or whether or not there's a big difference. So these are really important questions. Inquiry learning gives you an opportunity to, to think about questions that are quite important that you want to know the answer to, not just what is the acceleration due to gravity, which is a classic physics experiment where you can look it up on Google in, in a one-fifth of a second. It's 9.8 meters per second squared. So why have the students spend three hours establishing that? There may be a situation where it might be useful to do that, but for the majority of people, perhaps, and going back to your original question about students coming into the laboratories who have no long-term interest in pursuing physics, for example, that question of the relative efficiencies of pots and pans may be something which would actually mean something to them. So at the end of the day, you can make a decision, you can, you can recommend, you can advise based on the experiment you have devised, but in itself that has been based on some scaffolding, some skill development that happened early on. Um, so that, 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 that's one example of something which um, we've tried and it works well. But it, it, it is something that you find you have a number of students trying a number of different approaches. Um, uh, and one of the challenges is coping with the different approaches in the laboratory. And um, that's actually the exciting bit. It's, to begin with, it's a bit intimidating because you don't know what the students are going to do. But when, when you actually come to grips with it yourself, you find that actually it's quite, it, it's the creativity they come up with actually is something which, as an academic, I find uh, energizing. What if you've got a problem you want to solve? Most people know about solar cells. And they know that solar cells converts light into electrical energy. And people are interested in the maximizing the efficiency. Uh, one of the things that we have as an inquiry-oriented experiment is where the students use a new device, uh, new to them, which is called a thermoelectric generator. And what they've got to do is to devise a physical setup that will maximize the amount of, efficient, amount of energy coming out of the, the cell for a given amount of input energy. So you find them looking at um, finding, because the way the thermoelectric generator works is to have a hot surface and a cold surface. 
the greater the difference between the hot and the cold surface, the greater is the, is the electrical energy. So it's not to do with light intensity, it's to do with hot and cold surfaces. So how do you get the hot surface as hot as possible? How do you get the cold surface to stay as cold as possible? So people are using heat sinks, they're using fans, they're using flowing water, they're using tin foil to reflect more of the light onto the top surface, they're using lenses. So there's all sorts of things. They're using blackened surfaces to absorb more of the heat. So there is a problem where how do you get more out of this particular thing? Because the more you get out of it for a given amount of energy, then again, the more efficiency, more, more um, energy you're converting for little, little bit of, of value. So that, again, this is a more um, in, sort of empirical in a sense. They'll know about heat absorption. They'll know about black bodies and things. But very often these things will, or this type of experiment will be a lot of, well, we can't know exactly what's going to happen, so we must do some trialing, and then we must confer the efficiency. So that's where it's not, not so much making something, but it's changing the conditions to maximize something and, and finding out why that made a difference or why it didn't make a difference that you thought it would. So it's creativity as well as analysis. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it's, it, in fact, one of the challenges for the academic is to give enough information to make it interesting and not intimidating, but not so much that you might effectively give a, the solution. Because one of the temptations and one of the criticisms of the approach is that you're just holding back the actual information that I need to solve the problem. And sometimes it can appear that way. But there are genuine situations, like the pots and pans, where you don't know the answer. We'll buy new pots and we won't know. So. Uh, so that, that I think, in, in fact, that's quite good because what it can be is the academic who's running the, the class and the students are working together to find something out. One of the things that I think is very important about laboratory work is to, is to have the teamwork. And I'll see seeing the, the, the um, demonstrator, the academic, the tutor, whatever you want to call him or her, as part of the team. Not to do it, but to act as a general advisor. So this, this more mimics the way scientists work. You have senior people with vast amounts of information in their head and advice. And they're the people you would turn to to say, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Not do it for me. And it would be nice to have that, some of that culture translated into, the, into an undergraduate laboratory situation where it's more of a um, cooperative learning opportunity, if you like, or working as a team where the academic has, a, has that sort of role, not purely as someone who's doing assessment, not purely someone who's doing assessment, but someone who's actually encouraging, supporting, and giving the odd piece of advice. The other thing is, of course, that the students work together rather than against mm. each other. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at laboratories in general, they're an opportunity for so many things that we want students to be able to leave university with as capabilities. They're ideal for developing teamwork skills. They're ideal for developing an ethical approach. How many scientists, how many people who've done laboratories in physics have maybe changed a number here and there just to uh, just so that the data would look better. Now, that, that, that unfortunately, that is almost everyone has done something to that extent. I mean, maybe it's at university, hopefully not when it really uh, was something that they'd published internationally. But nevertheless, you, you can you can um, clarify, you can you can encourage, you can give students a reason for working ethically. I say working in groups. There's um, also the communication skills. How do students who are not doing your particular experiment the way you did it, how are they going about and what have they found? So you've got a chance to talk to a number of range, uh, range of people and um, have them explain to the class what it is that they've done. Congratulations on your National Teaching Fellowship. And Les Kirkup, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Associate Professor Les Kirkup from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, talking with Ian Wolfe about his National Teaching Fellowship.
Hello! Hello! We are They Might Be Giants. And we want to welcome you to our musical laboratory. As the philosopher Rudolf Carnap once so clearly said, <clears throat> Science is a system of statements based on direct experience and controlled by experimental verification. Or as we say, science is real. Science is real. From the And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send emails to us at diffusion at 2SER.com. Again, that's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us all of your thoughts, feelings, and stories. You can also subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And again, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to tonight's program was Mick Cavazzini, James Bourne, Victoria Bond, and Ian Wolfe, and Diffusion has been produced this week by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is also broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. And I'm James Bourne. Join us next week inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering on Diffusion Science Radio. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>